continuing our series in 2 Samuel. We have a few weeks left. We're in 2 Samuel 20 this morning. 2 Samuel 20 tells the story of Sheba's rebellion. We've now covered a few rebellions during the reign of David, and rebellions never happen in a vacuum. No one decides to lead a rebellion believing that they are in the wrong. No one takes a risk like that unless they believe their cause is good and just and right. Or at least that something good will happen to them. They're going to gain something from it. Money, power, glory. And in the case of Sheba, the writer tells us why he became a rebel at the end of chapter 19. So we're going to start there. This is God's word. Verse 41, chapter 19. It says, Then all the men of Israel came to the king and said to the king, Why have our brothers, the men of Judah, stolen you away and brought the king and his household over the Jordan and all David's men with him? All the men of Judah answered the men of Israel, Because the king is our close relative. Why then are you angry over this matter? Have we eaten at all at the king's expense, or has he given us any gift? And the men of Israel answered the men of Judah, We have ten shares in the king, and in David also we have more than you. Why then did you despise us? Were we not the first to speak of bringing back our king? But the words of the men of Judah were fiercer than the words of the men of Israel. In other words, they won the argument. And so there's this rift forming between the ten northern tribes of Israel and the tribe of Judah in the south, which would later be joined by the tribe of Benjamin. These ten northern tribes are already known in the text as the men of Israel with ten shares in the king. And so you can see this rift forming. Now let's look at chapter 20, verse 1. Now there happened to be there a worthless man whose name was Sheba, the son of Bichri, a Benjaminite. And he blew the trumpet and said, We have no portion in David. And we have no inheritance in the son of Jesse, every man to his tents, O Israel. And so all the men of Israel withdrew from David and followed Sheba, the son of Bichri. But the men of Judah followed their king steadfastly from the Jordan to Jerusalem. So Sheba, this worthless man, basically declares independence and, the, and he's a Benjaminite, so one of the tribes, but then the other ten tribes follow suit. And you might would say, under normal circumstances, that the people had every right to decide who they wanted as their king, right? States' rights. <laughs> Let them leave, right, if they want to leave. But this was not a normal political arrangement. This was a theocracy. The Old Testament kingdom of God. And God had given them a king. And so declaring independence from that king was a form of rebellion. Their grievance seems to be 
they believe that David has shown favoritism to his own tribe, the tribe of Judah. And you might say this is kind of a funny argument because they literally all just rebelled against David. Like all of them, his people, all the other tribes as well. So never mind the fact that David was gracious with all of them after they just finished rejecting him in support of Absalom. And this is how rebellion against God often looks. There's this focus on what's wrong instead of looking at all the things that God has done, right? There's this root of bitterness that starts to grow in our hearts. We evaluate our circumstances. We look at our story and we start to believe that God is withholding something from us. He's not answering my prayers. God has his favorites and I'm clearly not one of them. You ever felt like that? Never mind the fact that God created me. Never mind the fact that He put me in this amazing universe that He created out of nothing. Never mind the fact that He is right now filling my lungs with air. Which I'm not taking for granted after this week. Never mind the fact that He is keeping my heart beating. That he has not finished my story yet. But we would rather focus on that that feeling of bitterness. That frustration with the life that God has given me. And I think the reason is because it justifies whatever lifestyle we prefer. Whatever choices we prefer to make. And it softens our own guilt when we pass judgment on God. In our hearts, we declare that we have no portion with God, forgetting that we only exist by His grace. And we should be amazed that He chooses to have any portion with us at all. So those are the circumstances of the rebellion. Verse 3. David came to his house at Jerusalem. And the king took the ten concubines whom he had left to care for the house. And he put them in a house under guard and provided for them, but he did not go into them. And so they were shut up until the day of their death, living as if in widowhood. Now, if you remember, these were the women whom Absalom violated. Presumably... They were actually virgins before that, and now they are off limits. And so David provides for them, but they would never be married. And this seems out of place. When you're reading the story of Sheba's rebellion, it's like, why does the writer tell us this? And I don't think that it's a coincidence. This is a very intentional verse the writer puts right where he wants it. And it's no coincidence that there are ten concubines. How many northern tribes were there? Ten. 
And so I think they are meant to represent symbolically the ten tribes of Israel that claimed to have no portion with David. Those tribes were also being provided for by God. They had been given a king. They were rejecting that king. And so rejecting David was, in a way, choosing to live in widowhood. Okay? I want you to kind of hold on to that thought in the back of your mind. We'll come back to it later. Verse 4. Then the king said to Amasa, Call the men of Judah together to me within three days and be here yourself. If you don't remember, Amasa is the general, the captain of the army. So Amasa went to summon Judah, but he delayed beyond the set time that had been appointed him. So he procrastinated. Verse 6. David said to Abishai, Now Sheba the son of Bichri will do us more harm than Absalom. Take your Lord's servants and pursue him, lest he get himself to fortified cities and escape from us. And there went out after him Joab's men, and the Carathites, and the Pelathites, and all the mighty men. They went out from Jerusalem to pursue Sheba the son of Bichri. Now, when they were at the great stone that is in Gibeon, Amasa came to meet them. Joab was wearing a soldier's garment, and over it was a belt with a sword in its sheath fastened on his thigh. And as he went forward, it fell out. Okay, so picture this, just kind of fumbling out of the sheath, right? And Joab said to Amasa, Is it well with you, my brother? And Joab took Amasa by the beard with his right hand to kiss him, a show of affection. But Amasa did not observe the sword that was in Joab's hand. And so Joab struck him with it in the stomach and spilled his entrails to the ground without striking a second blow. And he died. Then Joab and Abishai, his brother, pursued Sheba, the son of Bichri. And one of Joab's young men took a stand by Amasa and said, Whoever favors Joab and whoever is for David, let him follow Joab. And you weren't expecting that, were you? (laughs) Um, But if you know Joab, if you've been following the story by now, you maybe should have expected this. Okay, Sheba is not really the main character of this chapter. David is convinced that Sheba is a threat. He's not really a threat. This chapter is really about Joab. Sheba's rebellion is this this obvious thing, right? But it's very short-lived. Joab's army pursued Sheba to a city in the north, but when Sheba gets to this city expecting refuge... The residents of the city see Joab's army outside and they're like, yeah, nah. (laughs) And they actually uh, kill Sheba, cut off his head, throw it over the wall to Joab, and then the army goes home. So the, the, the rebellion ends like that. It's really nothing. But then the chapter ends like this, verse 23. Now Joab was in command of all the army of Israel, and Benaiah the son of Jehoadiah 
was in command of the Herathites and the Pelethites. And Adoram was in charge of the forced labor. And Jehoshaphat, the son of Elahud, Hilud, was the recorder. And Sheba was secretary. And Zadok and Abiathar were priests. And Ira, the Jairite, was also David's priest. Now, do you see anything missing there? Every commentary mentions the fact that David is not listed. And I probably wouldn't have noticed this had I not gone back to compare it to other similar lists in Samuel. Okay? David is still the king, technically. But Joab is listed first. I want you to compare this to the previous list from chapter 8. So David reigned over all Israel, and David administered justice and equity to all his people. Joab, the son of Zeruah, was over the army, and Jehoshaphat, the son of Elam. You see what's happening? So then the list, right? Same list, slightly different names. Very noticeable change. <clears throat> and as the story builds... The writer has been suggesting to us, if we're paying attention, that Joab has the real power. David is the king, but Joab is really the one in power. Twice David has tried to replace Joab as the general, and twice now David has assassinated his rival. Several times David has commanded Joab to do something and Joab did the opposite, believing that his way of doing things was better than David's. And I want to suggest to you that this is the true rebellion of chapter 20. And I want to take it a step further. Religious people tend to focus on the obvious rebellion of people like Sheba. It reminds me very much of the difference between the younger brother and the older brother in the parable of the prodigal son. Which brother do we, the church people, judge more harshly, if we're honest? It's the younger brother, right? I mean, his sin is obvious. His rebellion is, is flagrant. He runs away from his family. He squanders his inheritance on loose living, right? His sin is blatant. It's obvious. But the younger brother was not the main character of Jesus' parable either. Because that's not what his audience needed to focus on. It was the older brother. The one who stayed home. The one who kept working. And yet Jesus suggests in the way that he tells the parable that this older brother was really doing it for himself. Not because he loved his father. And it was this less obvious rebellion that Jesus was intending to reveal to the religious people who were listening to the parable. You see, the rebellion of Joab 
the not so obvious rebellion was motivated by this belief that Joab had earned his position, that he deserved to be general. He knew better than David what David needed. And he was not going to stand by and let weaker men take something that belonged to him. And that's what pride looks like. Pride hates grace. Hates it. Pride is infuriated by the notion that God would bless people who don't deserve it. If we believe that it is possible for us to earn God's favor and that we have done a pretty good job of doing that, then we will be deeply offended by God's grace. Especially when He shows it to the more obvious rebels of the world. Jesus emphatically spells this out for us in Luke 18, one of my favorite parables. Jesus told them this parable to some who trusted in in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like the other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, give tithes of all that I get. Jesus says the tax collector, standing off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. The one who humbles himself will be exalted. Do you see the difference between the two men? God is not interested in works that are offered to Him in pride. God is interested in our repentance and faith. The word justified, I think, is the key. And cover to cover, God reveals to us slowly over the course of the Old Testament and really obviously in neon lights in the New Testament that His plan of salvation is through faith. Genesis 15, verse 6, Abraham believed the Lord and it was counted to him as righteousness. Galatians 2, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. And so we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law because by works of the law no one will be justified. Ephesians 2, for by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not 
your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. I want to be clear. Rebellion is rebellion is rebellion. Sheba absolutely deserved the judgment that he received. Now, had he had a change of heart and realized that this was foolishness to rebel against God's king, had he returned to David and bowed before David in repentance and pledged his fealty to his king, the king that God had set up, I have no doubt in my mind that David would have been merciful. In fact, he probably would have tried to give him Joab's job. (laughs) Because that's the kind of king that David was. But Sheba didn't do that. And his head was thrown over the wall. If we die in rebellion and not in Christ, then we will face the judgment of a holy God. But the difficulty is that no one really wants to believe that they are living in rebellion against the God of the universe and that they actually have to go to Him in repentance. No one actually wants to believe that apart from the Holy Spirit convincing us. Very often, especially for church people, our rebellion is more like the rebellion of Joab and less like the rebellion of Sheba. We don't really see the need for grace. We, we talk about it. Some of us really understand the theology of it. We don't really believe we need it. And there is a difference. And the truth, and I think this passage reveals to us quite clearly, is that pride is at the heart of every rebellion. The obvious ones and the not so obvious ones. We believe deep down that we know better than the God who created us. And we desperately need God to dissect and expose that pride. We need to stand naked and humble before a holy God who opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. Now, do you remember? I told you we would come back to the ten concubines. Those women were probably forgotten by everyone except Jesus. I think it's very likely, and I didn't realize that until this week, I think it's very likely that those ten women were the inspiration for another parable that Jesus told. The parable of the ten virgins. And I want to close with this. The kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. 
For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, Here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. And then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. Foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. And he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. So, not the easiest parable to understand, but it's actually quite simple. Jesus is talking about a wedding. A wedding, of course, is an event that should be an important and joyful day for both the bride and the groom, right? But imagine on the day of the wedding that half the wedding party shows up completely unprepared. Half of the groomsmen forget their tuxes. Half of the bridesmaids forget their makeup bags or their shoes. It's complete chaos, right? On a day that's supposed to be this joyful event. And that's basically what Jesus is describing. And just as the ten concubines in 2 Samuel 20 represented the nations, uh, the tribes of Israel, I want to suggest to you that in like manner, the ten virgins represent the visible church. Jesus is speaking to us, the people in this room, and he's saying what? He's saying that half the people in the church are not going to be ready when Jesus returns. And on that day, we're not going to be able to borrow salvation from someone else. If we are not ready, we will not be invited in. He will not know us. And this is, for His disciples, intended to be a wake-up call. Do not sleep on the kingdom. Repent and believe for the kingdom of God is at hand today, now, this moment. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, um, with this we approach Your table, which is a visible picture that we bring nothing to the table. And we need You to expose our pride that we would think we have anything to offer You. That we have anything to bring. 
It's a a wake-up call, a reminder that we do not deserve a seat at this table, at your table. We do not deserve to be let into the wedding feast. Because we've not been faithful. And so, Father, as we come in faith and repentance, I pray that You would reignite in our hearts a confidence that is in Christ and not in ourselves. I pray that we would come in humble reliance upon Your grace. I pray that You would make this a means of grace for us, that we would see it as a picture As we take it, we are receiving Christ. We are receiving Your grace. Nothing at all added to it. And Father, would we be encouraged that we are invited into a feast, into a wedding that we have no part of except that You want us there. And You've done everything necessary to get us there. We pray these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen. On the night in which Jesus was betrayed, He took bread. And after giving thanks, as we just did, He broke it and said, This is My body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of Me. After dinner, He took the cup and He offered it to His disciples as well and said, This cup represents the new covenant which is in My blood, shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Brothers and sisters, as we come in just a moment, I invite you to come. If your profession of faith is in Jesus Christ alone for salvation, if you've made that profession public before any Bible-believing church, then you are welcome to come. If you've not yet done that, if your children have not yet done that, then um, we would encourage you not to come and partake yet. But we're praying with and for you that the Lord Jesus would reveal Himself to you by His grace. Um, we're going to come down the aisle in the center, get a cup. There are two cups stacked on top of each other. The bread's on the bottom, the juice is on top. And then you can just take it back to your seat and we'll take it together in just a moment. And Paxton, if you come and help me out.